0: You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in.
1: Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters.
0: I want to take time today to personally thank our sponsors, the J.I. Learning Center and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Listeners, please do us a solid and support our sponsors. Thank you. Well, didn't you make
2: Welcome back to Pod Save the Rest of Us. We are your hosts, Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We have been working in the off-season to bring you stories of 10 vastly different women who, through the resiliency, have beaten the odds and nevertheless persisted. We walked away from these interviews feeling inspired. We hope you do too. If you like the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us and help us get these stories out into the world. Enjoy the episode. I'm excited for you to meet Kate Cox, teacher, athlete, mother, and someone who has survived and thrived through many health obstacles. I met Kate in high school when she was on an opposing basketball team, but got to know her in college when we both played basketball at UC Davis. She was a dependable and inspirational teammate, the kind of person who never complained, even though she was negotiating her health on top of the normal workload of athletics and academics. I was amazed then and continue to be amazed at the way Kate approaches her hurdles. She seems so matter of fact about it. Kate's health history is filled with major diagnoses and milestones, including being diagnosed with diabetes at a young age, having a pacemaker placed in her heart when she was in her 20s, and having open heart surgery when she was only 41. Before we get into this episode, I thought it might be helpful to give a quick definition of type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, once known as juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes, is a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces little or no insulin. Insulin is a hormone needed to allow sugar to enter cells to produce energy. Only about 5% of the people with diabetes have type 1. If it goes untreated, type 1 can lead to kidney and nerve damage, loss of eyesight, and circulation problems. I asked Kate to tell us about when she was first diagnosed with
1: type 1 diabetes. So I was diagnosed with type 1 in May of 91, while I was in eighth grade and eighth grade year. I was 13. I was totally healthy in terms of that. I was doing track and field. I was um, fully engaged in, in life. I was super active as a kid and I was active then. And what led to the diagnosis was Um, I was sick and uh, went to the doctor, and they told me I had strep throat and the flu, and went home, and I was just kind of in and out, just very odd, um, odd behaviors, and uh, at one evening, I remember talking to my friend on the phone, and they could barely talk in coherent sentences, and uh, later that night, my, uh, my parents thought I fell asleep on the couch, but really I had slipped into a coma, And they tried to wake me up to put me in the bed, but they couldn't. So my dad threw me over his shoulder and they rushed me down to John Muir. And um, it's kind of how they figured out. It was out of the blue since it's not really in her family. um, I'm the lucky one.
2: By the time Kate arrived at the hospital, her condition was very serious. The doctors thought Kate might not make it.
1: My blood sugar was 2,460, which is like they'd never seen anyone live over 1,500. So um, it was kind of this case I had lost a bunch, like my organs were shutting down and um, I think they kind of got me stabilized. And the doctors told my parents, like, I probably, I wasn't likely I would make it. If I did, I'd probably have a severe brain damage based on the fact that I'd lost reflexes. Um, So go get my brother and sister, you know, and, and bring them back and be prepared. Um, really for the worst. I asked Kate what she remembers
2: from waking up in the hospital.
1: Um, I I do remember a little bit waking up. Uh, I remember waking up and uh, my doctor at the time, Dr. Weinstein was this, you know, older gentleman with this very deep voice saying, you know, can you, can you hear me? Do, do you know who I am? I'm like, Oh, are you the guy that's been yelling at me to wake up? Like, I remember saying that, um, that the time frame of it was a little bit blurry. I mean, what I remember of the, the times in the hospital are, um, just this kind of like, oh, you're, you know, diabetic and like what? And learning how to take shots with oranges and, um, just kind of owning it and, um, I remember all the people who came to visit me and my friends that came and um, broke the hospital bed while we were there, having too much fun, making it go up and down. Um, You know, always playing, trying to keep it light. I also, what I do remember from that time is there was this buildup of glucose. I remember that my eighth grade teacher brought a bunch of cards that kids had made and like having trouble reading it because there was just such this buildup of the glucose on my, the lenses of my eye and whatnot that Um, things were blurry for a little while and they were trying to titrate my blood sugar down to more of a normal level.
2: Kate was in the hospital for almost a week, recovering from the coma and the effects of the high blood sugar levels. Kate was only 12 years old, so didn't necessarily understand exactly how the diabetes diagnosis would affect the rest of her
1: life. But she was aware of how serious her condition had been. Um... I don't remember thinking that it was something that I would, you know, have for the rest of my life. Um, honestly, I really sh- probably shouldn't have survived at the time. My blood sugar was so high, uh, and they hadn't seen anyone live over 1500. And so I think I had more of this, woohoo, you survived, like you made it through and wow, isn't that amazing? And like the doctors really didn't know at the time you know, what was going to happen with my body since it had gone so awry and the blood tests and things looked so bad in between, um, that they, uh, I just remember feeling more happy to be alive and that this was just, you know, a piece of what I needed to be do from now on. I mean, starting now, this is what I do and I take my shots and that's going to help. And then I can do what I need to do and check my blood sugar. And now I needed to eat at certain times, um, and, um, cause back then, uh, it's, I mean, so much has happened now. They have so much more technology that, that helps you lead a more, um, typical lifestyle, not as regimented, but, um, like what I remember was having to eat certain things at certain times, whether I was hungry or not. Um, and just having to be very mindful and change my, my diet. Um, seeing lots of nutritionists and things like that but um I don't remember thinking at the time it was long term it was more like hey here's what we need to do now and this is this is a new reality um I think maybe my parents would have thought something different <laughs> I think they were they were um uh, more realistic and um I mean it changed the diagnosis was about me but it really I I know changed our family um, dynamics because everyone had to change what we were doing and when we were eating to, uh, to, you know, kind of revolve around my schedule, what I needed.
2: Kate grew up in Northern California in a suburb of San Francisco with her mom, dad, older brother, and
1: younger sister. Uh, yeah. So mom, dad, and I had a older brother and a younger sister and, um, Brother's two years older than I am and sister's a few years younger and, uh, you know, grew up in Concord, California, just, you know, the everyday, uh, family, we were involved in all kinds of stuff, spending a lot of time on the weekends, going to different games and events and, you know, kind of dad that worked a couple jobs to help, uh, support us and mom's homemaker and made sure we got to where we wanted and, um, they were pretty amazing parents making sure they were there to support the kids at the various events whether it was sporting events or plays or whatever they they were always there to support us her childhood was
2: filled with athletics and all things active
1: sports has always been a huge part of my life growing up i mean i i was a kid who got up in the morning and started moving and playing and um kind of i just loved to move it didn't really matter what i um I mean, I remember from a little kid on, I had pretty good success at like four, um, starting out with swimming, you know, I was in, did the county level and I just loved to swim and then playing basketball and soccer and, you know, traveling teams and, and doing softball and, you know, doing that in the all-stars. So, and then if I wasn't playing organized sports, I was home, you know, riding bikes or spending the summers at the pool. Just um, just kind of nonstop movement because I just love to move and play and just playing stuff with the kids in the neighborhood. Um, so whether it was organized or not, um, that's just kind of my thing. That's my, my passion. I think it's just my body enjoys movement, being outside and playing or inside and playing. Kate took her love for sports to
2: college, where she earned a spot on the UC Davis intercollegiate women's basketball team. College athletics can be very demanding on the body. I asked Kate how she was able to negotiate her diabetes while playing basketball.
1: So I, I've always um, kind of been in the mindset that, um, you know, diabetes is a game of control. Uh, either you control it or it will control you. So I've always tried to keep my the diabetes, my blood sugars and whatnot, in the best control I can. And, um, and I have kind of told myself and, and had other, you know, diabetes educators and doctors and, and other type one patients just say, you know, like, you can do anything you want, when you have diabetes, it's not, it's not a condition that's going to prevent you from doing anything, you just have to be more thoughtful and mindful and prepared. Uh, so I think it's just, um, it was just maybe, the approach was, you know, do the best you can. I always had to check my blood sugar, you know, before a game. Often I would do it at halftime and after, and then, you know, just have like the sugar source available if my blood sugar was dropping low or have insulin ready to take if it's going high. And so, um, you know, it's just, it's one of those things, I think to me, diabetes is, is this constant like stream of thought that is underlying. And then, you know, your body will give you these um, kind of alerts every now and again, like, fortunately, I am able to feel pretty much if I'm starting to go low, or if I'm starting to go high. Um, I've, you know, I grew accustomed to knowing what that felt like. Um, and so I was able to kind of, Kind of predict that, and okay, hopefully get it before it got too bad, um, either high or low. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think again, it's just one of those things where it uh, it didn't stop me. Um, and I think once you just accept, once I just accepted the fact that you know it's a part of my life and this is what I do, it was just a little bit, a few extra steps I had to take that my teammates that didn't have it had to take, but. Um, being in control allowed me to do what I wanted to do and play how I wanted to play for the most part. I asked Kate
2: when she felt like she was truly able to understand and accept her diabetes diagnosis.
1: You know, that's that's a really interesting question. And I think um, I would say there are times in my life where I did accept it early on. And then um, there's parts where Uh, There was a phase in college where I was done with it. I just wanted to be normal, and I just wanted to be like everybody else, and I stopped checking my blood sugar like I was supposed to, and it was right around Thanksgiving time, and I remember going to Thanksgiving, and my mom said, hey, what was your blood sugar before dinner? Oh, I don't know. Well, what was it, you know, this morning? Oh, you know, I don't know. And she was like, what? And she uh, called my endocrinologist and got me in, and I remember going in and kind of, him reading me the Riot Act and taking me around and showing me people on dialysis and um, you know, people like reading read give me articles to read about amputation and retinopathy and all these other things that can happen uh as a result of having diabetes if you're not in control. And then he asked me if I enjoyed reading it and I said, No, not exactly. And he said, Well then get your act together or that's gonna be you. And so that little bit of a scare tactic, um, kind of helped me realize, I think at that point, like this is serious. I don't want those things. So I need to like, that's where like it hit, like it's not going away. Um, and I need to own it. And so I think maybe it was a little bit after that. Um, that's when I shortly after that's when I went on, got the insulin pump and I really, um, really started taking control. Because I think, you know, in retrospect, in high school, my mom was such a big help and advocate and was there at the doctor's appointments with me. And uh, it was more of a team effort. Um, and it was one of those things that, you know, I took my blood sugar, but they were a part of my my management. And then getting into college and doing it, it was me on my own doing, doing it and then having that um, kind of wake up call and then saying, all right, this is me and this is my life. And this is, you know, how I want to move forward. And I want to be able to play and do these things I love to do. So now I really got to get serious and make sure I'm in the best control possible. Um, so the actual acceptance, um, maybe it's come in phases, maybe a better way to say it. Like, I accepted it initially. I have it, okay. I gotta do these things, and then, you know, it's, um, it wasn't maybe until after you know years of college and, and owning it myself that I I truly accepted it. Um, but I think it's helpful because once you accept it and you own it, then it just it, it is a piece of you, and it it just frames that mindset of wanting to do the best you can with what you've got right so here's the the cards that are dealt and you know now play your best hand Kate was able to negotiate and come to
2: acceptance with her diabetes she thrived in college and after graduation made the decision to become a teacher and earn her credential at Sacramento State it was during her
1: first year that Kate was hit by another health scare so in 2000, I was in credential school, I was living in Davis and uh, thinking, you know, life is good. I was training to run a half marathon and I just kind of one day at the farmer's market just saw like this black tunnel coming and didn't really pass out. But I remember going to the, the hospital there in Davis and they're like, yeah, we can't really see anything wrong. Like your heart, It's in the 40s, but you're super athletic. So that makes sense. You know, everything else checks out. Okay. You look fine. Um, you know, if you pass out, come back. So I went home and my uh, roommates at the time, uh, one of them called my mom and said, you know, Kate doesn't look good. She's like curled up fetal position on the couch, like something's going on. So my mom and sister picked me up, um, drove up, picked me up in Davis and brought me over to Stanford. And, I remember, I mean, truly thinking my sister was driving, I was sitting in the back of the van thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make this. Like I, I truly felt like I was just going to pass out and be done at any point. And uh, by the time, you know, you get into the emergency room, they, they do the little triage thing, what can we do? And my heart rate was in the thirties. And so that got me the like e-ticket ride back to the, back to the room and just, this whole flush of like, what is going on? And oh, it's this heart thing. And overnight, my heart rate got to 25. And they said, good, we're putting you up into the cardiac surveillance unit. And, you know, I was in Stanford for for 16 days, as they tried to figure out what was wrong, they thought maybe it was sick sinus syndrome, where your sinus node doesn't fire appropriately, and that I needed a pacemaker. That's what they initially told us. But then they did the treadmill test and my heart rate did go up appropriately and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's actually not that. So they, they tried every test in the book and to try to figure it out and, and nothing, I didn't really fall under any category. There was no um, nothing they were able to diagnose. And so after 16 days, they sent me home with a halter monitor, which is just kind of measures your heart rate and the conductivity and I would call every so often and hold the phone over and it would send a kind of the rhythm EKG strip to the, the nurses there at Stanford. And they'd say, yep, same slow beat. Um, so still went in for appointments and trying various things. They, uh, they really didn't know what was going on and things were getting worse, not better. I wasn't barely able to stay awake to watch any shows and, um, had the help of one of my professors at Sac State to help me withdraw from classes. Cause I wasn't going to be able to get back there um, anytime soon. It was looking like, so finally they said, you know what, let's just try that pacemaker and see like we got nothing to lose. And so in December of 2000, they put in the the pacer and it was like magic. It did the trick. I mean, I woke up and uh, initially had these weird heart rates, uh, heartbeats that I could feel. And I remember being super upset. But then things kind of settled down and settled out. And, um, it was at that point I was able to get back to a uh, credential school. And, um, that was when I, I think, like, self coined the term the bionic woman. Um, and I decided that I wanted to run a marathon because not, I used to hate running. And to me, anyone that could do a marathon could do anything. And so I decided I was going to run a marathon to prove to myself that even with you know the type one diabetes and this autonomic dysfunction that, and a pacemaker that I could still do anything I want because, you know, I was twenty three and invincible in my own mind. So, um, I was able to complete the marathon over in Hawaii and check that off. Uh, you know, I would say that was a a huge, huge um, step and accomplishment and something that like mentally helped me know that. I could do whatever I wanted. Kate overcame this additional round of health
2: concerns and earned her teaching credential and went on to become a teacher. She has been teaching for 18 years and is currently teaching in Portola Valley to fourth through eighth grade students. Kate is one of those people who truly loves what she does for a living. It becomes so obvious when she talks about being a teacher. She is so extraordinary that she was awarded the 2017 California Middle School Physical Education Teacher of the Year Award, the 2018 Southwest Region Teacher of the Year Award, and was also one of the five finalists for the 2018
1: National Teacher of the Year. I love when I see the light bulb go off and have a a child that Like realizes that they can do something or that they know something that they couldn't do or didn't know before. Like just the other day, we were doing a little flag football and watching day one when I throw it out, you know, I say, Hey, we're going to work on some footballs or see how we, you know, here's how you throw and just kind of that look of, Oh, great. Here we go. But by the end, you know, seeing kind of over the, the course of the two weeks, seeing kids get it and throw that spiral and figure out how to throw it harder and. Further and with accuracy. Um, I just love seeing that. And I think there's that piece of the internal drive and motivation of like, gosh, I'm helping them learn skills that can help them be active. Because to me, uh, like I would say, after, you know, the last, well, throughout my whole life, sports has been a big part of my life. And through my various health events, you know, doctors have always said, you know, the only reason that I survived initially, they said, was maybe because I was so active as a kid, my body was able to withstand more than it should have. And so, um, you know, that, that was inspiring to me then. Kate's teaching philosophy. Um, well, my teaching philosophy is, um, I want, the students to be the best version of themselves that they can be, I guess. And so, uh, you know, every day in class, you know, we're doing something. And I said, you know what? You might not be the best at this, but you're going to be the best you can be. You might not be an expert, but my hope is that you're going to be a little bit better at the end of class than you were at the beginning. And then the same thing tomorrow, and the same thing the day after. So the um, you know, being in finding. Um, I guess it's f- helping kids find their joy, what they like to do, um so that they can and choose to stay active um and healthy for a lifetime.
2: When Kate first started teaching, she met her future husband Chris and fell in love. Naturally, with a serious relationship, often comes the idea of starting a family. While they were still dating, Kate and Chris had the difficult conversation regarding having a family of their own
1: one day. Um, you know, we had talked, um, before, yeah, definitely, you know, before we got married, um, the idea of, of wanting to have kids was something that we both expressed interest in. Um, and, you know, I was pretty upfront about, you know, it could be challenging. We'll have to see, um, you know, I have the diabetes and at that point, um, you know, having a pacemaker and a dysfunction, all these things. Um, it wasn't exactly like a clean bill of health. And so, you know, not knowing, um, you know, it was something that I knew we, I wanted and that we wanted. Um, but it was something that was like, well, we let's see if it's smart, if the doctors are you know, okay with this because obviously I didn't want to put myself in jeopardy, um, just to have children. Cause they, we, you know, at the other time, you know, talked about there's other ways there's adoption. Um, you know, we, we knew we wanted to have a family. Um, and if it could come from us, that was great. But, um, if not, then, you know, we could pursue other options. After consulting with doctors,
2: ultimately, Kate and Chris were able to have biological children of their own. Their pregnancies were high risk and Kate was closely monitored throughout. They have two girls, Michaela and Madison, who are eight and five.
1: I was, was followed by the high risk teams um, over at Lucille Packard. And, you know, I met with Michaela. We met, you know, before we even got pregnant, met with the doctors and said, you know, what do you think? And they were totally on board and, from early on, um, I was there and, uh, I was very closely monitored. Um, it was every, every couple weeks, you know, I go in and get another appointment and a check and they were monitoring, you know, everything and anything. And, um, it was with Michaela, it was, everything was perfect up until like week 35. And then, suddenly I went in for one of my, you know, by that point, I was going in like a couple times a week for these non stress tests just to, to see um, and monitor just because that's what you get to do when you have the high risk stuff. And they noticed that there was some protein and in the urine and then said, Hey, why don't you come in for for a check, we need to recheck and they did this and 24 hour year. And then they're like, Oh man, they called. I remember teaching. I was in the middle of teaching and they kept calling in the morning. And then they even called the school and got a hold of me. And they said, you know, we need to see you. And I said, Okay, cool. I'll come when, uh, when school is over. You know, they're like, No, you come now. And they were worried about the preeclampsia and whatnot. So they checked me out and said, Well, we're just going to monitor you for the day. And then. At the end of the day, they're like, ah, oh, we're just going to keep you overnight. And then overnight turned into the weekend. And then the weekend turned into, we're just going to keep you until you deliver. So get to spend three weeks at Lucio Packard in the, uh, the pre, the antepartum unit there, um, just in bed rest, uh, letting Michaela cook a little bit longer, getting healthier and, uh, you know, some fine, fine bedtime there. Um, you know, trying to catch up on sleep before I, before I had her. That's what everyone kept saying. Uh But then she came out and was healthy and happy and didn't need to spend any time in the NICU and was good to go. And then with Madison, the, uh, she came and she was a little bit more of a surprise. We weren't sure um, if we were going to be able to have another one. And then, uh, you know, as things worked out, it, it must've been in the cards. It was in the plan. And We were thrilled to find out we were pregnant again. And same thing, highly closely monitored, extra tests, um, you know, being followed and that pregnancy was a little bit different having another little one running around. Um, but I was good to go actually throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, and then she was scheduled for a C-section like on a, on a Thursday, but, like I said, she decides when she's ready and she was ready to come out before 39 weeks. So they, she started having contractions and then she came early and had the C-section. And, um, I actually had more issues post-surgery with, or post-delivery with her, um, than I had with Michaela. Um, my body just took a little bit longer. My, one of my doctors likes to say it's my body's kind of like an astronaut coming back to space. It just takes a little while to acclimate, um, given all the, the thresholds and challenges that I have. So, Type 1 diabetes does have a genetic component, and so Madison and Michaela are at higher risk of developing diabetes. My own endocrinologist and I were talking about the, um, you know, the, the girls are at an increased chance of getting it. They say the average person has a one in 300 chance of becoming type one, but someone that's a blood relative actually has a one in 20 chance of becoming type one. Um, and so there's, um, this cool research project going on now called like through trial net where they've identified five antibodies to type one. Um, and so they, um, I enrolled my girls in this trial. And so they had some blood drawn for two years in a row now. Um, And what they do on the blood draws, they just check to see if they um, show any of the signs of the antibodies that have been diagnosed or have been um, recognized as being high levels in those that are type one. And so last year we did it and both girls came back um, with zero antibodies. Um, And then they monitor you every year as obviously things change. And um, this year took them back and Michaela's came back still zero antibodies. And, Maddie came back showing, um, that she has one of the five antibodies. And so we took her back to get re-screened and she still, in fact, it wasn't a false positive. She does in fact have one of the five. Um, and so talking to the, the nurse there, um, the next step is we're going to take her in and have her go through the glucose tolerance test. Um, and then they'll check her a one C and see kind of her baseline now. And then they'll probably monitor her um, every six months, as opposed to every year to see, um, you know, hopefully that she doesn't develop that second antibody. Because what they know now is that, um, you know, for me, diabetes was very much a surprise. Um, I had no clue and I was diagnosed in the emergency room, which is still a fairly common way to be diagnosed um, when their blood sugars are pretty out of control and People are in like diabetic ketoacidosis, but now, um, if she shows the signs, if she develops a second one, uh, they say once, uh, once people develop two, it's not no longer a matter of if they will develop type one. It's a matter of when they will show the signs. And so it's kind of done in stages. And so once you have two antibodies, then she would be actually like stage one. And then if they have Two antibodies and they have impaired glucose tolerance. That's stage two. And then stage three is just the actual clinical diagnosis. So, um, with Maddie, um, you know, for me, as for any, anything that's anything less than perfect for your child, it's a little bit, you know, going through this quick little disappointment and then, you know, kind of reminding myself of everything I said here. Like, God, this is the time to get it. You know, there's so much research going on. Like, until there's a cure, that's the, that's the big, uh, motto, right. Of type one juvenile diabetes research. Um, there's so much happening. And so, you know, just take it as it comes and be prepared. Um, but you know, take advantage of what's out there in these trials because they were mentioning that there might even be, um, an opportunity for Maddie to potentially do some, be involved in research something she might be able to take that could prevent um, or delay the onset, or prevent or delay the the uh, recognition of a second antibody. So, um, just staying current and staying involved is uh, is kind of where we're we're at right now. Twenty eighteen brought new health issues for Kate. Four and a half months ago, I had a little open heart surgery, and that came as a result. Um, so the pacemaker they implanted in 2000. Um, over time, I have a dual chamber pacemaker, and so one of the leads was placed in the atrium, and then one went through the tricuspid valve down to the ventricle. And the lead that went through the valve over time. Um, the good news is, as a as a young person, I have this very robust immune system, um, which is good. It keeps you healthy, but. It also recognizes foreign bodies and so it recognized the lead that goes down through the valve as a foreign body and it didn't like it and it was trying to get rid of it so my body over time um, in trying to get rid of it produced all this t- tissue like this fibrotic tissue which over time I guess accrued and kind of got a hold of this uh, wire the lead and the lead ended up getting stuck and adhered to these two of the three leaflets of the tricuspid valve and it held it open. And so, you know, your valve is supposed to open and shut with each beat and the valve is what prevents the blood from going back up from the ventricle up to the atrium. So uh, it was holding it open. And so with every beat, there was this big rush of blood going back up to the atrium, um, which was causing this backflow and all these other problems starting to maybe impact my liver and this edema. And so um, the pacemaker, having had it since 2000, the leads were kind of coming to the end of their life anyway. They needed to be replaced soon. And so they said, well, let's, let's do it all together. But in order to get the leads out that they need to do um, to replace them, because it was stuck to the two of the three leaflets, um, they said that they would need to go ahead and, um, do the open heart surgery, open me up. And, you know, when I was on bypass and my heart was stopped, they could delicately extract them and try to repair the valve. Um, so that's what, that's what happened. It up, uh, May 23rd, 2018 had the surgery to take the original pacemaker out, try to repair the valve. And then they ended up putting a new pacemaker in. Um, but this time they attached it to the outside of my heart As to not go through the valve that is already uh, compromised anyway. And um, since then, I'm just on the road to trying to get as strong as I can and get back to uh, doing what I love to do more moving and, and playing.
2: I asked Kate if she had any advice for someone who was recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes or
1: for parents of a child who was recently diagnosed. You know, I would say that, um, you know, this, that it's a disease that's not yet curable, but it's very much controllable and, you know, get in, I would say, work with your doctors, be your own advocate, advocate, educate yourself. And there's such a world of technology out there right now, diabetes related that, makes it a lot easier. So embrace the technology. And, you know, it's amazing. Like now I have this, my glucose is monitored 24 hours a day in it on my watch. It's on my phone. I get alerts if it's going high or low. So, um, that was like so far from reality when I was diagnosed that I would say, you know, do your, do your homework, know, like educate yourself about the disease pay attention to it and, uh, and just incorporate it into your life. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things like it's, you can't change the diagnosis, but you can control now how you react to it. And so do the best you can um, to, to make it the least impactful it can be. And you can do that by you know, taking care of yourself and and taking advantage of the products and just um, being proactive. We all draw strength from different sources.
2: I asked Kate what has kept her strong through her ongoing health concerns.
1: I would say, you know, uh, just fantastic network and the love of family um, and friends and uh you know knowing that i want to be here and be here for the girls and for chris and um you know they have supported me but also i think there's a little bit of drive of like selfishly like i want to be around there's so much still i want to do and see and and people i want to hang out with and um so it's really it's people that help me, but also people that inspire me to to do what I can to be as strong as I can uh, so I can live life to the fullest. It is
2: well understood. Much of our life is out of our control. A life of serious health problems for Kate has been as such. But Kate also reminds us that we get to dictate our reaction and our attitude. Kate has chosen to be an example of strength, positivity, and discipline. It is because of this, that through it all, including the diabetes, the PACER, and open-heart surgery, that none of it will stop Kate. She stays true to herself through her own health difficulties, and now, more importantly, any that may impact her daughters. To me, it just seems as though Kate can't be stopped, and she absolutely will not let anything stop her children.
0: The Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation is doing some great work. Please visit their site and learn more on how we can support their work. Thank you. This episode was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank our contributors, Hunter Lewis and Robert Stanley for theme music, Danny Burns for Transition Music, Justice Stanley for Web and Social Media Content, Jasmine Smith for Web Design, Caprice Hall for Graphic Artwork, and our sponsors, Solid Lotion Bars, and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can find us at www.podsavetherestofus.com as well as on Instagram at the Us. You can also find us on Twitter at save the rest of us. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.